Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guests are Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke. They are both moral philosophers, and their new book is Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. We're all guilty of it. We call people terrible names in conversation or online. We vilify those with whom we disagree and make bolder claims than we could defend. We want to be seen as taking the moral high ground, not just to make a point or move a debate forward, but to look a certain way, incensed or compassionate or committed to a cause. We exaggerate. In other words, we grandstand. They've written a great book about the grandstanding phenomena, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Justin Tosi and Brandon Wormke. Brandon, Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank uh, you. It's a pleasure. So why don't we just spend like 10 minutes grandstanding? <laughs> just to kind of get it out there and kind of, you know, this is interesting because one of the things I like about your book is grandstanding is a term that is used with some frequency. I mean, it, not not excessively as much now as say virtue signaling is, but it's used a lot. And it's one of these words that I think it's like Augustine says, I know what time is until you ask me what it is and I don't know anymore. And you guys, I mean, how much of this, when you're working on this book on grandstanding as moral philosophers, how much are you grappling with the fact that, well, people kind of know what it is, but they don't know what it is. And people, politicians and people accuse each other of it. And it seems that what you're saying is there's kind of an imprecision to the way people understand it, but they know it kind of, they, they intuit it when it, they smell it kind of, but so you guys are trying to add a little bit of clarity to the conversation, right? Yeah, that's that's really nice. Uh, you know, one thing philosophers uh, are good at, one of the few things we're good at is um, trying to bring clarity to something that a lot of people uh, might have a, a vague or nagging sense about. And um, and so, yeah, you know, about six years ago, Justin and I, you know, we went to grad school together um, and we started noticing that a lot of discourse was really toxic. Um, it seemed to be getting worse. and it seemed to us that a lot of people uh, were using public discourse as a vanity project. They were, they were engaging in moral arguments or arguments about politics to show off how good they were. And there was this, you know, at the time, the only term that was around was, was moral grandstanding, which, you know, which dates back, you know, uh, over a hundred years to, um, to baseball. That's where it originally um, came about. But, you know, Obama used to, accuse people of grandstanding. People used to accuse Obama of grandstanding. So that was the only term that we knew. And, and, and there weren't, there was nothing like a, a careful, uh, you know, um, elucidation or uh, understanding of this term. And then about a year or so after we started writing the original paper on grandstanding that eventually turned into the book, people started talking about this term called virtue signaling. And, um, and so that, that sort of became actually the sort of the, one of the major terms to describe this phenomenon, as we explain in the book, there's actually some confusion here and, and we prefer the term grandstanding. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that philosophers are really good at is, is trying to provide an average person, a, a, 
a, a clear and accessible way of understanding the world around them. Because that's what philosophers are generally known for: clear, <laughs> clear language that <laughs> normal people on the street well, just absolutely try. understand <laughs> and find clear and, and and you know very easy to unpack. Right? I mean, this is this is what I mean. What philosophers are known for today in modern I'll, life? I'll put it this way, Scott. Uh, I think philosophers at their best. One of one of the best things philosophers can do is tear something apart that people think they understand, build it back up in a careful um, and empirically informed way, and then deliver it to your average person in a way they understand. <laughs> but you're right that that doesn't, the last step doesn't always happen. Yeah, yeah usually, usually it's when people get into writing, like the analytic philosophers get into writing in the equation form. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think this is most people are like, you know, most people are traumatized by algebra unless you're an engineer or something like that. But now it's interesting to me that you all sh did shy away from the term virtue signaling. Because as I was reading the book, immediately I thought, oh, well, they're talking about virtue signaling. And then I'm reading it and I'm kind of you're like, no, we're not talking about virtue signaling. This would be a case, though, for philosophers where everybody knows what virtue signaling is, right? But you're you're thinking that is part of is part of the, the challenge. It seems like what you're arguing is now. This is what I took from from reading you guys. Correct me if I'm if if I'm wrong here, but that signaling can have both conscious and unconscious forms, right? Sometimes we signal to people in very explicit ways. Sometimes we we do it in, 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 for instance, I might buy a Prius and pull into the, just, just for the fact that I can charge it in the, in the Whole Foods market and pay too much for my food and show everybody, see, I brought my own bags. But some of that is probably implicit. I mean, some of that, I might not be carefully working out all of the, all of the implications of this. So, but what you're saying is more, moral grandstanding, the grandstanding is, is always going to be explicit and it's done quite consciously, or it's conscious of getting sort of the recognition, admiration of others and kind of social status, whereas, whereas, whereas virtue signaling might not always be conscious? Or, Well, so let me say first, there is nothing like algebra or equations or, or anything in, in the book. Uh, <laughs> not, that, not that you were intimating there was, but, but let, me, let me answer this. Um, so... Uh, implicit, explicit, or, or, or like witting, unwitting is, is not quite where we draw the line here. Um, what we say about, about grandstanding is that it's always intentional, right? You always actually mean to uh, send this message that, that you're a good person and that you want other people to, to receive this message and then be convinced by it. Um, so you're right. Virtue signaling um, isn't, uh, isn't always witting, Um and neither is, is grandstanding. But the, the difference here uh, that, that we think uh, importantly separates these issues, there are a number of things. But the, the biggest thing is um, signaling comes with anything. That, I mean, you can call anything that conveys information a signal, right? But we don't actually object to all like messages people send about their moral beliefs. Um, what we object to, we think, and what people find troubling when they use terms like grandstanding and, and virtue signaling, uh, what they object to is is people intentionally like putting on a show, right? So 
people could be sincere, insincere. They could be aware of what they're doing or not. Um, the key thing is that they mean to uh, be trying to show other people how good they are. That's the distinctive feature of, of grandstanding, and that's what uh, what separates it from from virtue signaling. So, so the, the good thing about this, um, but don't you think when people yeah, use the term virtue signaling in like social media context and stuff, they are talking about people that are doing it to draw attention to themselves in a kind right. of way, in a kind of way that's very um, often. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it does seem like uh, it, there is a sort of like grandstanding. I mean, you kind of you, you and it's interesting though. Maybe the other difference with virtue signaling, though, I, I don't know. Maybe grandstanding happens this way too. I find oftentimes with virtue signaling, people are pressured into it, right? Like that you you're not. You guys use examples of people like Harvey Weinstein or Weinstein or something. Where okay, I'm yeah, I'm under pressure. So I'm going to go after the NRA and I'll show virtue, but. Oftentimes, I feel like with virtue signaling, people do it out of fear. Like if I don't put, if I don't black out my thing during the Black Lives Matter week, or if I don't do this, or if I don't um, talk about this issue, uh, you know, I remember during a police violence thing, or some, or some, it was a racial incident a couple of years ago, and I saw someone say, "If your pastor doesn't preach about this on Sunday, they shouldn't be a minister at a church." And I thought, "Wow, I mean, that's kind of, but, but it, it almost becomes like there's this pressure with." With virtue signaling, sometimes people just do it because they're afraid of the mob. Whereas grandstanding doesn't seem to have quite that character all the time, does it? So, you know, look, I, I think you're absolutely right that when people use the term virtue signaling, what they have in mind is something very close to what we mean by grandstanding. One, the problem we have with the term virtue signaling is that it's, it's, mis, it's, it's misleading. It can't be misleading in lots of ways. Um, and one of the ways it's misleading is that people use this term vice signaling. Now you, you may have seen this term. So now what we're going to do is we're going to get into arguments about whether someone is signaling virtue or signaling vice. But what really what's going on is people are trying to show off how good they are because they believe they're good. Like they, you know, most people believe they're better than average. Most people, um, want others to think of themselves as, uh, as we think of ourselves, uh, so we, you know, we want to project this image that other people believe what we, um, believe about ourselves. And, and we don't need to get into discussion about whether it's actually a virtue, whether it's actually a vice. I mean, in a way, a lot of the public discussions about virtue signaling are, um, confused because, um, uh, because of the language, because of the, the, the terminology is misleading. Um, now to your point about people feeling pressure to, um, Virtue signal. I mean, one of the things we say in the book is that virtue signaling is actually kind of a nice term for behavior that's not that doesn't involve like talking, doesn't involve sentences, um, and you know, like 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 changing your profile picture to make it all black or to wear a pin, right? To you know, to show off you care about this cause or whatever. That's all fine. You know, in a way, what we're most concerned about is what we call public discourse or moral discourse about politics and moral, you know, important moral issues. And the problem is that people are using public discourse, which is this really important tool, this really important resource that should be used for, uh, you know, making the world a better place, you know, identifying injustice, um, helping people, identifying rights violations, and people are using it to self-promote, right? They're making, they're, they're, they're using this really valuable resource to make themselves look good. They're, they're, they're treating this, this thing that we have to make the world better and they're, and they're using it to, you know, for their own gain. 
And so, but I do think your, your point stands for grandstanding too. I mean, you, people recite slogans. I think a lot of people who are saying things like, and this is going to date the podcast, but people who are saying things like abolish the police. Um, I think a hopefully, lot of, hopefully this will date the podcast. Hopefully this will date the podcast. <laughs> I think a lot of people who are saying things like abolish the police, um, uh, on reflection, I think a lot of people don't really mean that. They're, they're not envisioning a world in which there are literally no police departments or no police officers. I think what they what they think is by saying this slogan, they're one of the gang, right? They're on the right side of history. They're on the side of angels, and you know, and there's this kind of moral arms race that leads us to take these extreme positions because either we want to, you know, look like we're one of the really good people or we want to stand out and look even better than people that are that are getting the attention for being good so i you know i think the kind of social pressure if you were at the top of the moral food chain for or or grandstanding chain for abolish the police you just move to chaz that's what you have to do right i mean that's where you're serious that's where you're putting your money where your moral grandstanding is right you're there you're you know you're giving up some hygienic perks and things like this and you're you're, you're embedded in the in the in, in the in the in the music festival slash mad max beyond thunderdome reality yeah 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 so what well, one thing to say that i mean i think brandon got got to this point but people start out not having really extreme views and then and then because of the pressure uh to stand to stand out or, or to fit in um they end up doing things that they otherwise wouldn't now sometimes that's a good thing Right, but it can also lead you to a really extreme place that, that ends up not uh, being sensitive to what's true, and that's that's what we're worried about. One of the things that we're, I think, you guys are exceedingly clear in the book. Where you talk when you're defining grandstanding, right? You say that it starts with recognition, desire. Right? Everybody wants to be recognized. Right? Everybody wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be seen as as a decent person. But that's not enough, right? It has to be paired with grandstanding expression. So that that desire has to be paired with an action, with a statement, with a kind of less than genuine expression of moral, you know, outrage or or rectitude for the purpose of getting the desire you want, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really simple account. You you say something in public discourse uh, because you really want people to be impressed with how good of a person you are. That's grandstanding. It seems so easy. I guess that's why it's so, <laughs> so often, easy right? to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty easy to do, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, look, these are uh, these are very. This is in a way we find puzzling people who deny uh, that grandstanding happens. It's like these are really base human, base and basic human desires. You might think like this is just we all want to be recognized, um, but in lots of areas of our lives, we're er- we're we're able to sort of overcome that desire. You might you might be at a dinner party and you want to brag about you know how much money you have or where you went to college. You know, oh, I went to college in a little town in in you know, in, in in Connecticut. Um, and but, but most of us are able to sort of like overcome that temptation um, and sort of sublimate those desires to recognition. The problem is that in public discourse, um, and I think social media has made this worse because there's the the temptation is just so great to have hundreds or thousands of people to like retweet you or like what you say or follow you. It's just like this constant affirmation. And so the temptation is just like really strong. And so it's really easy to say things. And we're not, we're always aware exactly what we're doing, but a lot of the times we're not aware of our desires and motivations, but they're still there. So we, you know, we still want this attention. We still want the affirmation for being a good person. Um, and it's very, it's very tempting. It's very tempting to, you know, to get on Twitter and just, and 
we all know the things that you could say to get lots of attention. I mean, we, we're all aware of what those things are. Um, and, and some people do it, uh, you know, they, they do it for the likes. You talk about grandstanding in, for two purposes. One is prestige, right? Because yeah. you, you say, you know, and the other is dominance. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you you point out in the book that generally on prestige, like pe- what people wanting to think, people wanting recognition for their moral clarity and their moral goodness, people on the extreme left and extreme right are more likely to do it because their their base, their their tribe is more susceptible to the in-group talk, right? What does Jonathan hate, the great moral psychologist, say morality binds and it blinds. And so it binds you together. And so you're talking to the in-group. But you say for dominance purposes, if you're using grandstanding to kind of dominate and, and get social recognition is you're more powerful and you've beaten this group, that even centrists do it. They're on dominance. Everybody, it's, 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 it's an equal opportunity offender, right? Where as far as the dominance thing goes, why is that? That's a great question. Um, so we... Yes, we we're still working on on this actually. So we're doing uh, a, a lot of uh, empirical work with uh, our friend, a, a social psychologist, Josh Grubbs, uh, and this is how we know, for instance, that uh, prestige grandstanding is it's much more widespread than uh, dominance grandstanding, uh, and that that uh, people grandstand for prestige more often when they're, as, as you said, at a political extreme. Uh, so so then, like, why is it? I mean, this is your question. Why is it that people? Uh, there is no like partisan, uh, you know, extremism uh, divide over over like whether you dom- uh, grandstand for dominance. Um, so one thing that we th- we think might be the reason for that uh, is that if you are out for prestige, like you're more attuned to to like um, being a, a member in good standing and like wanting everybody to like you uh, and that that sort of thing. Uh, but if you're just trying to like feel powerful. Uh, right. Uh, if you, you just want people to be afraid of you, then maybe, you know, you're not that you're not as concerned with, uh, being popular within any group. You just, you just want that feeling of like, ah, I, I won, I bested him. Um, so if that's right, then it shouldn't be that surprising, I guess, that that people who, uh, uh, are like that, uh, are maybe not, uh, as strongly affiliated with, with one or another partisan side. Yeah. One of the things we found in some of the research is that um, people who grandstand for prestige and by grandstanding for, you know, prestige, we just mean people who want to be thought of as morally impressive. They want to be admired. Whereas grandstanding for dominance is basically it's, it's the really dark triad traits, people who are online, like shaming, doxing, harming, you know, threatening people, calling names, it's really dark phenomenon. One of the things we found is, is that, um, grandstanding for prestige is, is um, seems to be causing polarization. So, in other words, it, there's this there's this incentive to outdo others when you're grandstanding for prestige, and that leads people to take more um, more intense stances. And if you think about the mechanism for that, right, the way that you do that is by saying something of content of substance that's more extreme or more polarized. But that has nothing to do with like shaming or like calling people names or insulting, right? So this that sort of darker dominance grandstanding, to do that, you don't have to take a more polarized or extreme stance. All you got to do is like call someone a name or threaten them or try to dominate them. So one reason why it, it might be the case that you just find more prestige grandstanding at the extremes is because 
in order to get the prestige, you actually have to outdo the statements of others. You don't just dominate and call names and be mean. It's you actually, there's a different kind of strategy that would be required to get attention. You say something in the book about grandstanding and, and how successful you're likely to be at it. You say, first, your grandstanding will be less successful if the image you're trying to project is inconsistent with what your audience already believes about you. People won't be impressed by someone's grandstanding if they already think she's a bad person. So Trump, ineligible to grandstand <laughs> or just an ineffective grandstander? <laughs> I mean, because he does seem to kind of like, we're the best people. I care more about the Bible. I care more about the country. I mean, it is interesting, right? Because here's someone that uh, is he almost so far gone that he can do it in the, in the fact that most people have at least some concern for how they're morally perceived and his utter lack of concern. Does that put him off the scale where he can't grandstand all over again because he, because <laughs> nobody cares? <laughs> well, so yeah, he's the problem <laughs> case for the book, fellas. I mean, he's a problem <laughs> no, 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 case no, as no, for many not. things. <laughs> it's a cool question. Here, um, yeah, I mean, look, Trump psychology is, uh, I'm, a, I'm an amateur Trump psychologist. Uh, but, you know, I'll let Justin finish this thought. But the basic, you know, one thing that's really important to know about grandstanding is that um, most people who grandstand aren't trying to get every every person to think of them as morally impressive. They're, they have what's called a reference network. So there's a certain group of people that they want to think highly of them. So, I mean, again, I'm not trying to do Trump psychology here, but I, I, I suspect that with Trump and a lot of people, What's going on is Trump is not trying to convince Nancy Pelosi that he's a good person. That's not the goal, right? He's not trying to convince, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden to think, oh, my gosh, Trump actually does care about the poor or whatever. Trump's reference network are people who did vote for him, are going to vote for him, might vote for him, right? So if he's grandstanding, I mean, we don't know. I mean, who knows what's going on up there? But if he is grandstanding, it, it's it's no problem for the account that he's not trying to convince everyone that he's a good person. It's often what he, what you're trying to do is convince um, a certain reference network, a certain group of people that that you share their values or something like that. Yeah. So think of the difference between um, the way uh, politicians behave when they're like running for office, they're campaigning, so they're appealing to people within their party uh, or people who are at least close to it. They want them to think that they're good people. So compare that to um, the way like corporations write their press releases uh, or do their social media. Like, they just go for whatever is like the most popular, the most anodyne statement they can that will appeal to everybody. Uh, so they're both, but you know, both groups can grandstand. It's just that the grandstand is aimed at, at different kinds of, of people. Uh, that they, they're in, they're aiming at different kinds of in groups. Yeah, yeah, I th that's interesting. To note that, yeah, you're looking at the in-group thing is 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 so central to it, which leads to some of the things you guys talk about in the fourth chapter, which I, I, I think this is for me the so what, now what chapter, right? Because you, you talk about like, you could think that this is okay, grandstanding, it's nauseating, it's frustrating, uh, you know, it, it, it can be irritating at times. But you think there's real social costs to it, right? The, the, the that in polarization is 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 one of these first. It's the first thing you you talk about. It's it, it really winds up. You know, it, it, we're already very tribal, and the tribalism leads to more confirmation bias, and it leads to gridlock in government. Sometimes it leads to an, it, ugly social interactions. Sometimes it leads to riots. Sometimes it leads. You know, it's so. You guys are saying, arguing that here, grandstanding doesn't dial the polarization and tribalism down. It it 
it it it dials up. And, and in fact, your argument is something to affect, right? That you you need the tribalism and the polarization for this grandstanding to work. If 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 everybody was a lot more measured and moderate and thoughtful and reflective and kind of uh, you know was checking their confirmation biases, grandstanding wouldn't have such a popular appeal. But in the tribal polarized culture, it, it, it it's sort of what what it feeds it feeds the the grandstanding fire, and then in turn the grandstanding fire feeds the polarization fire. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so think about a, an issue that people don't disagree about. Ch- child abuse is bad. Right? You don't hear people taking really extreme stances about child abuse. Well, other than you know things that are, are maybe appropriate to say about how bad that is. But there's By the no. Way, Justin, like, I, I played golf with a guy once who was giving he was giving a talk at his his Carnegie Mellon graduation, like the the BA, you know, the smaller graduation talk. He his, his colleagues had offered him to give the student address. And he said, I'm a little worried. I'm very controversial. I'm like, well, what are your controversial views? I'm pro-life and I'm totally against world hunger. I said, well, the pro-life <laughs> thing is probably okay, but don't go with the world hunger thing, especially among MBAs who are thinking hunger keeps people motivated. It's keeping the work face. I would not, would not mention the world hunger thing because you're really going to alienate people there. Okay. It's yeah. just one of those beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, look, if you look around, I'm sure you can find people grandstanding about how bad world hunger is and, and trying to out, outdo one another. Um, but the things where where people really grandstand are these these kind of wedge issues that their group cares the, the most about. Uh, and that's where you see this sort of moral arms race uh, of people trying to one up each other and, and engaging in what we call uh, in the book ramping up. Um, so this is where. I think you see um, the cause for, for polarization uh, because, you know, people get going back and forth within their, their little friend networks where everybody more or less agrees and you got to stand out. Um, so in, in order to stand out, you have to be a little bit more extreme uh, than the average member of your group, at, at least. Uh, so, you know, you get 10 people going back and forth about, I don't know how, how bad Trump is or how great Trump is. Um, and by the end of it, everybody's saying a very extreme thing that they might not have have uh, agreed to, you know, in the abstract or you know before they had this conversation. And so polar, you know, think about one of the best examples of polarization, like in discourse, like over the course of like forty eight hours, was was we went from we we needed police reform to we. We want to abolish the police. And people are saying, oh, they don't mean abolish. No, we really mean, we literally mean no police. We're going to replace them with social workers. And and like that, that happened over the course of like two days. That's a great example. You know, if we're right, a lot of that polarization occurred because of social pressure to outdo one another with taking the most radical stances. Now you might think, okay, so what's the problem with polarization? I mean, the mere fact that someone hasn't, you know, a quote unquote extreme view, that doesn't make the view false. Right. There are some, quote unquote, extreme views that are that are true or maybe true. And there are views that were 100 years ago extreme that turned out to be, you know, maybe correct or something like that. So what's the problem with polarization? Well, there's two. Um, one is that um, if the mechanism by which we arrive at a more extreme position is not what's the evidence, what's the data, what's the good argument. But instead, um, who's going to be impressed by this? What's going to get me the most likes? Um, what's going to make people think that I care care the most? That is not a process that is reliably going to lead you to the truth, 
right? So the fact that people like or retweet or think that you're great, that's not a reliable method for finding the truth. And so one problem with polarization is that it leaves us. Do you think anyone ever told Trump that? Like, do you think anyone ever says at the White House, sir, I just want to remind you, it doesn't matter how many tweets Uh, you like to. Well, this is, so this is a problem later in the book with politics. It turns out grandstanding, because voters demand it, grandstanding pays off. But um, but yeah, so, you know, look, grandstanding doesn't lead to the truth of the matter. I mean, the other problem is, um, you know, even if your side happened to arrive at the truth through this bad method of finding the truth accidentally, the other side is moving too. And the further the two sides move away from each other, the harder it makes compromise. Because um, all of a sudden you have some people saying, abolish the police. On the other hand, you have people saying, no, police are so honorable and should be treated with such respect that they should walk off the job anytime they get punished, right? I mean, that's those are the two extremes. And then, like, so what's the policy that's going to be the compromise, right? No one's going to accept that compromise. They're going to see every compromise as rotten. So the thought here is just that discourse, the way that the incentives work, pushes people apart in ways that disincentivize compromise and lead us to have false beliefs. And that's bad for all of us. I mean, it's, that's, that's just really harmful to have a discourse full of, you know, false beliefs and, and, uh, you know, refusal to compromise. It's interesting too. You talk about in the book, how, how the social cost, one of the social costs also is, is just false beliefs, right? I mean, it's interesting to me that, that studies I've seen over the past few years, like education doesn't help with confirmation bias, right? You just get more resources for better sources, right? And, and, it seems to me like that grandstanding, right, kind of has this confirmation bias effect. It fuels the group think, right, and it, it, it kind of it, it's hard in the midst of demanding the grandstanding, right, and encouraging the grandstander and getting whipped up in the grandstanding frenzy, right. It's hard to sit back and sit, sit back and say, oh, like let's think about some of the presuppositions and priors I have here. Man, I wonder if if these things are really secure. If, like you just don't do that, right? I mean, it kind of it kind of anesthetizes you. To doing critical self-reflection about your priors and your presuppositions, which are the way most of us live our lives, you know, you, you can't use those presuppositions and doubt them at the same time or be critical about them. So if you're grandstanding all the time, if everything is the virtue signaling and the kind of showcasing, then you're most people are never going to be in a place where they can be reflective or critical about their own uh, kind of presuppositions, right? Because they're just always on the grandstanding game, either either as grandstanders or as recipients of the grandstanding. Yeah, so Scott, you asked, uh, do you think anyone ever ever said to Trump, you know, uh, it seems like we're not really aiming at the truth. The point generalizes. If you say to, you know, you come upon a, a group of grandstanders engaged in, uh, in ramping up like we're talking about, and you start saying, you know, I don't think that's true. That, that sounds a bit overblown. All you're doing uh, there in that game uh, is giving people more reason or more occasion to grandstand. Right, so this is why uh, things get get so out of control because there are no breaks. Uh, there's no reason for anyone within that in group to question the narrative that, that's being pushed or, or the direction that things are heading, uh, because um, if you do so, you're just going to cost yourself status within the group. Yeah. So so basically, it's one of those things where the sociology of the thing, but it's chicken or the egg, right? Does the sociology breed the grandstanding, or is the grandstanding? breathe the sociology or is it is it kind of mutually reinforced but you're right the critical thinking is just going to fuel the fire right well you just don't get it exactly that's right you guys both teach undergrads right oh yeah well 
yeah we, they, they they teach us Scott, we, <laughs> yeah we, we instruct yeah what, what how is how does the grandstanding conversation go over with them i mean because it, it's interesting because they're the first group of people that are you know they're a generation that are fully immersed in social media which i mean i i mean grants it's not like grandstanding didn't happen before social media but man social media makes it so right it, 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 it exacerbates it because most people before social media weren't writing letters to the editor every day or there wasn't you know and you're limited kind of but you could get on twitter or facebook and you can immediately participate in the grandstand right like Trump says something or Nancy Pelosi says something or Black Lives Matters post something or somebody posts something about Corona myths and, and, and all of a sudden you can you can get on there and just participate immediately. It's like there's no deferred d- d- delayed gratification. Boom. You can just do it. Yeah. I um, I don't know the relevant data. I so, you know, uh, let's see undergrads. So the incoming freshmen this year will be 18. So they will have been born in 2002. Uh, my experience the last few years with undergrads, I don't know what Justin's experience has been. That that first of all, they're not on Facebook. They're not they have no interest in Facebook. Facebook is what their parents and grandparents are on. Um, and they're also not on Twitter. I mean, a lot of these 20 to 21 year olds, they're not on Twitter. Um, I, I remember when when the COVID thing started to hit, I was talking about a lot of the cases and the data and the models. And they were like, where are you getting this information? And I said, Twitter. And they just laughed and laughed and laughed. I mean, Twitter was just like a joke to them. They're on I love, TikTok. I love Twitter. No, Twitter's well, Twitter, Twitter is good in its own way, but, but 20 year olds are not on Twitter. Well, they should and, get on there. If you're 20 years old <laughs> and listening to this podcast, you get on Twitter. Follow all of us. Follow Scott. Follow Scott. Jones I love Twitter. Twitter. I, I, I think Twitter is so cool. Twitter is an amazing thing for all its faults. It's but but twenty year olds are not, they're they're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, Instagram, um, Instagram, Instagram, and that's it because they want to share photos and they want to share videos of themselves. They want to tell stories. They they want to be seen. I don't think the narcissism has gone away. I think it's just transmuted into a certain different kind of. So all this to say, I kind of have this hope. And Justin and I are not. You know, we're both in sort of purplish reddish states at um not prestigious universe <laughs> hopefully they don't hear this very yeah, fine wait, universe. Hey, uh, very uh, fine. Wait, wait 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 i'm tweeting out to your deans right now <laughs> not we're not prestigious I'll, I'll we're not at yale we're you should be Oakland. saying we're the most prestigious university right. we, we have, have so have, much prestige we're really we the elite words we're better yeah. looking we got the best words so a lot of our students come from from a lot of uh, conservative backgrounds, I think. Um, and so maybe we're not getting a lot of the activist culture at, at our universities at, at Bowling Green and Texas Tech. But I do hold out hope that there's a younger generation that's not as interested in having arguments online about like about what the right, uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, what the right, you know, See, I, I things I see things a bit differently than, than Brandon. Let me let me burst Brandon's bubble. Um, so instead of of engaging um, at least superficially with with arguments and, and ideas, like we see people sometimes do on Twitter and, and Facebook, um, there's a phenomenon of uh, posting a cute selfie and then a, what they call a long caption. Uh, and the long caption is just a string of of hashtags of of you know the causes that that they you know want people. Uh, uh, to to look at them because of uh, and some 
some meaningless, you know, some platitude uh, platitudes about, yeah. about justice or, or about is, yeah. patriotism right. or, or, or whatever. Um, so the grand scene is not going away. I, I, I mean, I think Brandon knows this. Uh, it's, it's uh, actually just becoming even more vapid. Yeah. I think maybe it's become more, um, uh, like millennials will, will argue with you or yell at you. Mm-hmm. I think the 20 year olds, it's a, it's like morality is fashion or trinkets. It's like trinket morality. It's like, yeah. well, I have the, I have the right hashtag on my TikTok thing or I don't, I don't know how this works, but like you have like the hashtag on your Instagram <laughs> and then like you have, so, so like you're one of the, you're one of the crowd. Like you don't have to discuss it. You don't have to give an argument. You're not, you're not going to give an argument. You're not going to discuss it. It's just like, it's like check the box. And I don't know if that's worse or better but yeah well i mean worth pointing out this is i mean this is kind of the logical conclusion of of where we say things are heading in the book right because if morality is if moral talk is just about uh becomes just about creating the right impression about yourself of course it's going to become even more vapid like this of course it's going to become all about you yeah so is this is this uh when you you guys have written this book you're moral philosophers, you're people that have spent time, hours and hours, taking comprehensive exams, reading Aristotle and Kant and talking about the categorical imperative versus utilitarianism and all this stuff. You live this monastic life for a while to try to make the world a better place. And then this is the culture win. Are you guys ever just like, why didn't I go into managing a hedge fund? (laughs) $60,000, small office, less than prestigious school. Are you ever just like, oh my God, I should... I could have been a hedge manager and virtue. I could have been grandstanding on the weekends. I could have, yeah. I could have paid Doing a PR person to get me Twitter followers. Doing ethics on the weekends on Twitter. Yeah. Everybody's working for ethics on yeah. the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Justin and I just had a conversation earlier today. It's really frustrating. Like um, most days, yeah. like most days. <laughs> it's really frustrating. I mean, um, you know, as you rightly know, we spent, you know, we spent six years of our lives uh, writing this book in one way or another. And and then you see the next um, think piece by a, a mud brain journalist. Doesn't, doesn't matter who. Doesn't matter who. <laughs> and uh, and they're Name like, names. Let me, let me tell you what virtue signaling is and six reasons why you should be doing it. I, hey, were, I thought about this for like Why you five, should be doing minutes. it? Yeah. In fact, there was a piece that just came out in Time Magazine. Uh, time ideas today about why you should virtue signal, and we've had right. philosophers tell us this too. Now, look, if it's one thing, what if you have a philosopher an art, says that you want you want a name, yes. Uh, it's a philosopher uh, named Neil Levy who just published a paper recently arguing that virtue signaling is is virtuous. Oh, and uh, and also, I guess Jamil Zaki and Mina. That's right, Shikara. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the one that came out just today. Yeah, we're throwing shade. Yeah, we're gonna throw shit. I'm naming names. Hey, uh, look, look, hey, there's you know, there's no there's no dean, no editor on this podcast, baby. I'm it. <laughs> Just our tenure committees. Uh, yeah, I mean it's really frustrating. In in that that piece, you know, they they do link to our original paper, but um uh, I'll I'll go out on a limb and say they haven't read it. Um and uh and we and we we publish some empirical work in psychology journals, and I don't think i mean I'm they don't engage with it we don't know they don't engage with it yeah. i'll put it that way and they just ignore it so we you know we and this is another thing i think philosophers are just very self-conscious like no one cares about what philosophers think because they want like they want the hot take or they want like studies show 
And philosophers are not arguing either of those things. Philosophers give arguments, but most people think that an argument is just like, it's like a hot take, right? It's just like how you feel about something. And, and, and so, you know, we have this like very insecure about our, about our status and in, <laughs> in thought culture. And so, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. I mean, yeah. It's, most people, uh, most people aren't patient like you and your listeners, Scott, they're not, they're not right. going to read yeah. a book that carefully lays out uh, a view and, and a bunch of nerdy arguments. That's right. It. You have the best listeners. I have the best, the very best. Yeah. You're beautiful they, people. You're the elites. Scott uses the best words. I use the best life. words. I use the best microphone. <laughs> it's interesting. You, you actually, the, this is the funniest part of the book. I, I love this. <laughs> I think this is like, uh, I know it's utter genius. So you're talking about is there hope? And you, you have this you have these things that Erasmus wrote down, the great, of course, Catholic 16th century thinker. Um about from table manners. It's unseeming to blow your nose into the tablecloth. Do not fall upon the dishes like swine while eating, snorting and disgusting and disgusting and smacking your lips. It's a serious offense to gnaw a bone and then put it back in the serving dish. And he says, you know, disapprovingly he cites disapprovingly that some devour rather than eat as if they were about to be carried off to prison or push so much into their mouths that their cheeks bulge like bellows and others pull their lips apart while eating so that they make a noise like big. I don't even know how you would do that. I'm trying to imagine why you do it. But, you know, it's interesting because you guys argue that, that, you know, people, Erasmus doesn't take the time to write stuff like this uh, if people aren't doing it. And so over, you know, the course of five centuries, generally people eat a little better than this. So there's hope. So in five centuries, <laughs> Maybe we'll have a grandstand, right? Yeah, we don't, yeah. They just need to read our advice book, like they read Erasmus. Yeah, advice yeah. Book. all of our minds are in the cloud by then. Yeah, the basic idea. That's Justin. Justin found that. Justin also found the part of the book where we talk about uh, public defecation. But, yeah, I thought that was going to be the. <laughs> but yeah, the, here, I mean, here's the basic idea: <laughs> is that is that a we don't think that the way to the way to improve discourse is to call people out. We think that accusing people of grandstanding is a really bad idea for various reasons. Um, we think that I'm calling yeah, I'm calling out for grandstanding by saying calling people out by grandstanding I know, is right? a bad idea. I've often wondered if people think that that's some sort of trick we created to like write about grandstanding and then to insulate ourselves to tell people they can't accuse us of grandstanding. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you know, I'm I'm often struck by when we talk about grandstanding with people, they they're First question immediately is like, well, what does it look like? How do I identify it in other people? Instead of how can I stop grandstanding? It's always like, it's always like, what are other people doing? Yeah, what are we going to do I, about those yeah, people? What are we going to do about those other people? Instead of how can I stop it? So one of the things we argue is just that one way to cut down on grandstanding is just like chill out, <laughs> like, 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 like control yourself and ask yourself, you know, am I, am I saying this because um, I'm going to actually do good? By saying this, or am I just trying to look good? But we do think that there is a kind of social pressure that you can push against grandstanding, and that's by making grandstanding embarrassing. So instead of calling it out, just ignore it. And um, you know, imagine writing some like really, really woke uh, Facebook status or tweet about something, and then like no one liking it. Like that's embarrassing. At least for most people, it's embarrassing. And so the thought so you're is going with the game. With, you're going with the Game of Thrones approach. Shame. Shame. Yeah, yeah. Make it look, <laughs> make it make shaming sure. great again. I've never seen the Game of Thrones. Uh, there's this scene where they march well, this one woman naked through the street. That's overt shaming. Goes, shame. 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 Yeah, that's overt shaming. We want to like shaming by silence. Like just yeah. like just ignore with 
withhold from grandstanders the approval they seek. And so we we talk about this uh, norm changing. So the goal is to make grandstanding embarrassing, just like it would be embarrassing to stuff your face full of pork chops at dinner. It's interesting because you talk about a little bit about you just said that people when you bring it up, they look at, oh, yeah, how do we stop it? I often think we just need more good old fashioned sort of Lutheran Augustinian theological anthropology where everybody just thinks they're. We had a whole chapter in the book, all that, but Justin made me take it out. <laughs> well, right. But there is this thing, right? If you think of yourself as, as sinful and flawed and full of contradictions and ambiguous on your good days. Oh, yeah. Then you're then you're. Then when you bring up something like grandstanding, right, your first inclination is to say, well, gosh, how do I do that? But if you think of yourself as fundamentally good and enlightened and, you know, and, and, and have a sort of confidence in the anthropological nature of beings in the West, then you are going to you're just going to look to weaponize that. Where are the bad people? Right. And this is this is this is the problem. Right? If people had some more had some more humility, anthropological humility, then then maybe, uh, you know, your book would be better received. Well, if they did, we probably wouldn't need to write it. Well, there you go. So there you go. So yeah. it sells books. So, yeah. so bad anthropology sells books, which is fantastic. <laughs> well, it might sell this one. It would, yeah. but yeah, that's that's really that's really that's really insightful. I mean, Justin and I both are we're pretty uh, humble people. We're both very humble. You're the people. most humble people. Most the humble most humble. People. I mean, this you're, you've got the most humility. We think that we we think that humans are uh, we're, we're pretty pessimistic about human nature. We we think that most of us are a mixed bag morally, um, and uh, and so yeah, if if you go into this thinking, oh man, I'm really a mess, and um, I've got all these secret motivations and desires that aren't even transparent to me that lead me to behave and do things that I don't want to do. Um, and if so if you go into it thinking like that, like this, you know, a good you know a good um, a, a good Lutheran or um, Protestant, it, you know, we're all broken, you know, we're all broken. And the, and the goal of morality is not to fix other people. This, you know, this is, we point this out in the book. This is something that Jesus and Nietzsche actually agree about morality. I have a view. I have a statement. It's absolute. Okay. It's one of the only absolute statements I ever make. Do it. If Jesus, Nietzsche and Augustine agree on it, it has to be true. And oh. sometimes <laughs> two out of three is all I need on oh, most this- issues. If it's two out of three, I'm good. But then and you need a tattoo of this. So this is yeah. this is because this is they all agree about this. Morality is not to be used as a weapon to make yourself look good or to dominate others. That's I think Jesus is clear about that. Nietzsche is clear about that. Morality, the, the, the goal of morality is not to subjugate others or to raise yourself up and make yourself look good. That's what morality so if you go into this book or this discussion thinking like, oh yeah, I gotta correct others, I gotta fix grandstanding in others, you're right. That's not the right way to think about it. It's like this. Well, what am I like? These people are not my business. Who's my business? I'm my business. And I need to get my house in order. I need to figure out if I'm on online trying to make myself look good or not. Yeah. And that's what I like about your book. I think that, that as far as a book that serves not just to take up a, a really pressing and pernicious issue, but also as a guide to a framework for the moral life, that, it, that it's, you know, it, that you probably will have a more sophisticated moral intuition. If you work on yourself on a complex issue like this, where it's elusive when you're grandstanding or when you're buying into it and stuff like that, and that kind of hard self-examination, which requires a strong stomach, a lot of grace, uh, and some long suffering, right? That will kind of build virtue and character to get to, which I think is puts deposits in the bank that can be spent on other moral issues, right? That this is a one of those issues that 
because it's so subtle in some ways that if you work on it and, and really work on where you're susceptible to it, that it will probably, it's like kind of gymna- moral gymnastics for your own moral sensibilities. This is probably, this is, might be the hardest thing for m- most humans to do, at least I think in our culture, is to sublimate our desires for status and sublimate our desires for attention. I think it's maybe some cultures do this better for various reasons, but I, I think in much of Western culture, I think um, the anxiety that comes with feeling like one does not have sufficient status or the anxiety that comes with thinking that people don't think that I'm a moral saint. I, I think that's a, that's just a huge temptation that a lot of us have. And I think it's maybe the hardest one to overcome. Um, and this is why one thing we say in the book is you might, the best thing for your soul might just be to get off social media. Um, as much as you love Twitter, uh, Scott. <laughs> for Are some you of guys us, off social media? Uh, no, we have a book to promote. promote. I was just going to say. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There, the moral uh, philosophers. Yeah. The great, the great thing uh, that I want you both to hang over your office doors. Do as I say, <laughs> not as I do. To my credit, I waited to get on Twitter until like until like a year and a half ago. I don't know if I, I don't know if that gives me any uh, any points or anything, Scott. But I and I mostly just like drill tweets. Yeah, it's just Justin's Twitter is a lot different than mine. I'm going to follow both of you guys. I'm going <laughs> to see what's going on with you guys. Well, guys, thanks for writing this book, Grandstanding. It's a phenomenal book. I want to recommend it to all my listeners because again, it is a great book uh, to just understand the nature of the human condition as well as understand a specific problem that that has a lot of costs but there is hope as they say because people eat better than erasmus pointed out in the table manners thing and so guys thanks for writing the book and thanks for spending some time talking to me about it thanks so much scott that was great thanks man thanks for listening to this episode of give and take if you like what you've heard here please do a few things for me go share about this episode in itunes write a review give it a rating share the love and goodness or go on social media share a link to the episode on twitter or facebook or instagram please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here thanks again thanks again for listening to this episode of give and take and until next time friends fare thee well